So good to see all of you and be with you this morning in the house of the Lord. Yes, we had a just a wonderful day yesterday, celebrating a beautiful wedding and celebration. And you know, we've had some some rough goes of it as a church over the past several months, and we've gathered for many different reasons, but mainly they were to say goodbye to dear saints. And so it was really fun to have a time that brought us together to celebrate and sing and to rejoice. And so I'm thankful to the Lord this morning. We, we, we had a baby dedication in January. We had a wedding in February. And we've got baptisms coming in March. The Lord is good. Good to see signs of growth and happiness and, and life and just so good to be able to serve a God who's so kind and so merciful to his people. In his book, an anthropologist on Mars, neurologist Oliver Sacks tells about a patient named Virgil, a man who had been blind from early childhood. And when he was 50, Virgil underwent surgery and was given the, 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 the gift of sight. But as he and, and Dr. Sachs found out, having the physical capacity for sight is not the same as seeing. Virgil's first experiences with sight were confusing. He was able to make out colors and movement, but arranging them into a coherent picture was difficult. And over time, he learned to identify various objects, but his habits, his lifelong behaviors, were still those of a blind man. And as he observed this phenomenon, Dr. Sachs asserts, one must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. And in the interim, he said, it can be quite difficult. As we think of that truth this morning, and as we think of the gospel, to truly see Jesus as he is means more than just observing what he did or what he said. It means a change of identity a change of lifestyle. And that is the meaning of the new birth and why we are told that we must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, why we must repent and believe and come to Jesus who will then lead us on this journey of what it is to live out the righteousness and message of the kingdom of heaven. In recent weeks, as we've looked in the gospel according to Matthew, the opponents of Jesus have seen several miracles that he performed, but they did not have eyes to see the truth and the meaning behind those miracles. Therefore, they wrongly attributed them to powers other than God. And so as we saw in very stark terms, Jesus warned them about the meaning of words and the impact that words can have and that the reality of what appears on their lips is the true and unfaltering witness of what is already in their hearts. So as we arrive at our text this morning and our next step here in the Gospel according to Matthew, after seeing these powers and signs, after refusing them, after attributing them to evil powers, they now come back to Jesus and they want to put him to the test. They come and ask for a sign. But Jesus knows who he is. He knows what he is about. He knows what he came to do. And so he's going to use this opportunity to warn them not to ignore the signs and the evidences that is before them but to repent and turn to him in faith. Failure to do so 
He warns will lead to even Gentiles who will have more moral authority on the day of judgment, for they will rise up and speak against these Jewish people who had seen such great things and did not believe. My prayer this morning as we prepare to go into the Word of God is that He would give us eyes to see who Jesus is and what He is doing, and then also to understand the meaning behind it all. And so as we prepare to study God's Word together, I invite you once again, if you can, to stand in honor of God and His Word as I read the passage we will look at this morning, Matthew 12. Verses 38 to 42. And this passage, given to us as a gift by God the Holy Spirit, says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the gift of a Bible that we can have in our hands or on our electronic devices. And we thank you that as the giver of this word, we can lean upon you now to be the teacher of this word and to guide us by your spirit. For our desire, Father, as we come this morning, is not to leave the way we came, but to be transformed and changed because we've been in the presence of the living God. So speak to us this morning, Father, for your good purposes and for the glory of our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning to those of you joining us online. We're so grateful that through the gift of technology, we can be together around the Word of God. We invite you now to turn in your copy of God's Word and study with us as we look at this passage this morning and follow along. And as you follow along in your sermon outline, we come to our first major point this morning, which is the demand for a sign. The demand for a sign. As part of the ministry of, of the Messiah, Jesus performed many miracles and signs and displays of divine power. Sometimes we call these miracles, but often the word that is used is sign or wonder or power, but we might call them miracles. And the list of wonders that Jesus has performed is well known. And Matthew takes great care to point out that he brought sight to the blind, which was one of the first signs that the prophet said would be performed by the Messiah. But we can think about giving hearing back to the deaf or causing the lame to walk or the healing of a wide variety of illnesses and diseases and maladies that Jesus did as people came to him. He's fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament about the nature of the Messiah, his nature, his character, and what he came to do. And we've seen over the course of our time together in, in the book of Matthew that for the most part the crowds are amazed. They're excited, they're happy, they're joyful, they're curious, they follow, they want to know what's going on. 
but it was not the case with the religious leaders. They kept calling into question the nature and source of the signs that Jesus was performing. We've seen that in the preceding paragraph before we get to this one, even denying that these powers were being done of a divine source, saying that it was from an evil source. And yet here, after this encounter that they've had with Jesus and the responses that he has given to them, now they're here demanding a sign. Why? After all, he's already performed many signs and wonders, and they had seemingly rejected all of them, saying they're of evil power. So what sign could he possibly perform now that would cause them to believe? Well, let's just take a step back and think about some things that were going on historically during that time. That in those days, healers were known. The Pharisees themselves sent out healers. They sent out exorcists to perform these different spiritual functions. So it's not necessarily the fact that miracles were being performed. It's not necessarily the fact that miracles were unknown. The problem for these Pharisees and these scribes is that they were not the ones that had sent Jesus out. He had not gone out under their authority. So they suspect that he's one of these operating outside of the power that they had, maybe even a charlatan. And as we have seen already in their sources, their early sources, they referred to Jesus as a sorcerer, misleading the people, leading them away from the teachings that they were given as the ones who had been appointed by God. And so that's part of the background of what's going on in this story. So we see them, they come to Jesus and say, we wish that you would perform a sign. And as a standalone test or as a standalone thing, there is actually precedent for a call for a miracle to be performed or to test the authenticity of that miracle. The people of Israel had been in slavery for a long time under the tyranny of Pharaoh. And in response to their cries for help, God raises up Moses to confront the leader, Pharaoh. Moses himself is not even sure that he should go, and he's not even sure that the people will accept him. And so God gives him some signs to perform that will confirm that, in fact, he is from God. And the hope is that they would accept those signs. You can read about that in Exodus 4, and then as the story unfolds, the plagues that were sent upon Egypt. And we saw that the people didn't always respond properly, and the Pharaoh himself didn't always respond properly. So there would be more dramatic measures that would need to be taken so that the Pharaoh would finally let the people of God go. We see the example of Gideon, who was just a simple man, who was just quietly harvesting and, and sifting his grain when God appears to him and says that he would be the deliverer of the people of Israel. And he says, well, I'm a, a person of little renown, of a very small tribe. How would I be the one that would deliver Israel? And so he asks the Lord to provide some signs, that it was he, Gideon, who would be raised up by God to be a deliverer of his people. We see examples in the life of the prophet Elijah. He's dealing with the evil king Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who are putting great strain and difficulty upon the Israelites. And so Elijah marches up to Mark Carmel and has this dramatic encounter with the false prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel. And they make an agreement that God will, the, the God who is the true God will make a powerful display of judgment or power on that mountain and so Yahweh rains down fire on the mountain as proof that he is God and that these others were false prophets serving a wicked king 1 Kings 18 so there are examples that we can see in the Old Testament where people will ask God to give a sign and they're asked to confirm the authenticity of the sign meaning is this one really sent by God or not 
But of course, we also know that people asking for a sign are not always expressing faith. Often asking for a sign can be seen as a stance of defiance or doubt, a kind of prove it to me, as if they have on their license plate the show me state from Missouri. You know, you got to show me before I'm going to believe. Well, I think that's the case here in Matthew 12. Several times in the Gospels, they ask that Jesus performs a miracle at their beck and call. It could be individuals, it could be religious leaders. But even when Jesus did perform miracles, it wasn't always the case that people would believe. Miracles and displays of power are no guarantee of faith. And in fact, there can be false signs. And so the people of God are called to discern, is this a good sign or is it not? In Deuteronomy 13, one of the signs of a false teacher was that he would perform signs and that would be given as a test to God's people. Will they stand firm even as they see displays of wonder taking place? So, a little bit of historical background, biblical background as we get into our text this morning. Our first point, a demand for a sign, and we realize it is a devious trap. A devious trap. And our text says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, as we've already said, they had ignored all that Jesus had already done. So why are they asking for a sign now? And if we put the parallel accounts as we see them in Mark and Luke, it was obvious that they had come to test him. Now, Matthew doesn't say that directly, but the context leads you to believe that that's exactly why they have come. After all, he performed a miracle. They said, this is from the devil. He said, oh, be careful how you speak about the Holy Spirit. It will not go well from you. Oh, well, then show us a sign. He'd healed a blind and a mute man. Jesus warned them. Now they asked for a sign. They had shown no evidence that they believed that he was the Messiah until now. They did not believe that he had come from God. They didn't understand that he had come to deliver the people from sin and death. He was a sort of imposter in their eyes. And so that, that shows up, as we've said, in how they viewed him in some of their early commentaries. Now, Jesus is not the only one who has to deal with those that oppose the works of God demanding some type of sign. Paul, even as he writes to the church in Corinth, recognizes some of the difficulties that he has to deal with as he gets the gospel out. And he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But the problem here was not their predisposition to ask Jesus a question. It was their predisposition to not believe him, to not follow him, that they were already in hostility to them. And so our text says, then one of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So we look at that and say, well, look, they've come and they've used the term teacher. Isn't that an honor uh, honorific title? Well, not according to the pattern that we see in Matthew. Because every time someone comes to Jesus and refers to him as teacher, in every example in the book of Matthew, it is said by an unbeliever. It's one of the cues that Matthew gives of the nature of the one that is speaking. So they're not coming necessarily with good intent. They want to see a power display in front of their own eyes so that then they'll know for sure whether he is from God. But it was not a sincere request. After all, Jesus had already healed a man on the Sabbath. We studied that a few passages ago. He said he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's already said he could forgive, and, he could forgive sin, displaying the divine authority that God alone can forgive sin. 
He had already said that he had a unique relationship with the Father. He's already performed many signs and wonders. So this was a devious trap on their part. So in response to their devious trap, he gives a divine rebuke. But he answered them, the text says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus speaks here with a strong prophetic voice. And imagine being there and hearing that you are being called an evil and adulterous generation. Well, they're evil because of the rebellion against Jesus and the rejection of Jesus, which showed the true source of what they were trying to do. They were adulterous because throughout their history, they were continually adding things in their customs, their laws, their man-made traditions. They wanted to add to the things of God. That was true of the people of God of old. That's why we read Psalm 95 this morning. If you notice, God says to the people in Psalm 95, I sent you signs and wonders, and you rejected them, and so I had to pour out my anger against that generation. And so the cry goes out, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. This was the pattern that was ongoing in the history of Israel. And now they're trying to force Jesus to act according to their demands, wanting to be in charge. So this would be a stinging rebuke that would come from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's an apt description of the history of Israel. I've listed just a few texts here. The list could be quite longer where you can look at and see how Yahweh declared that the generations of Israel, one after the other, kept rebelling against him, falling into idolatry, which led God to have to judge them and punish them in his loving chastisement. So Jesus rebukes these scribes and Pharisees for their request because so far their behavior toward him has continued with that same attitude of rebellion against Yahweh as was shown in the Old Testament. And Jesus needs to make the point that he's in charge. He's not going to be some carnival performer or traveling sideshow. He never performs a miracle simply because somebody demands that he does. He makes it clear that all that he does is under the control of the Father as he walks in perfect harmony with the Father. And just as nobody has any right to demand anything of God the Father, he's saying, you don't have any right to demand anything of me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the harvest. I'm the Lord of life and death. He reminds them that they are mere creatures and they need to be careful how they speak back to the Creator. Now, some might be tempted today to say, well, I want to see a sign from God. I'll believe if I see a sign from God. And I have to say, just in the years that I've been privileged to be in ministry, whether it's on a campus in Minneapolis or whether it's in West Africa or the Arab Middle East, people are saying, well, God needs to show me something. They need to be careful about demanding such a thing from God because I'm convinced that He has given us a sign. And you can hold it in your hand, and you can read it, and you can learn from it, and you can grow in your understanding. And it, it, it speaks truthfully about what we encounter in our daily lives. And so if we have a sign, let's pay attention to what the sign is pointing us towards, which is the majesty and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that brings us then to our second major point. If there was a demand for a sign, Jesus will continue and point out the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. And the text goes on and says, but no sign will be given to it, this generation, except the prophet Jonah. Evidence itself will not necessarily lead to faith and repentance. The scribes and the Pharisees, they stall. 
They heard, they observed, they asked questions, they challenged, but they did not believe. The ability, the desire, the want to believe, the want to come to Christ are gifts of God the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of those whose eyes are then open and ears are open so that they can see and hear and believe and they cry out and say, God, have mercy on me. But Jesus says here, I'm not going to give you a sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So let's look at what that sign may indicate. What is the purpose of this sign that he's pointing to? The first is it's a sign of judgment. After all, he is called the prophet Jonah. And what would prophets do? They were given a message of God. They would go to the people of God in a particular situation and give a particular message. And the call was often around, look, God is a good God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. He is kind. Turn from your wicked ways and turn back to him. But also the prophets were used to declare God's glories, not just to the people of Israel, but often beyond the borders of Israel, as we see in the example of Jonah. So Jonah is sent to the Ninevites, modern-day Mosul in Iraq, to turn from their wicked ways. And they listen, and they repent, and they turn so that they avoid God's judgment. Well, the presence of Jonah was a sign of judgment against the people of Nineveh. The presence of Jesus is now a sign of judgment against the people and his generation because he is the one to whom all the prophets pointed. But I'd also say that it's a sign of resurrection. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, Jonah, we study his example, but we don't necessarily follow it, at least not 100%. He didn't want to obey God when he was called to go and preach to the Ninevites. They were those people. They were those enemies. They were those who he did not like. Put whatever label you want on them in, in our contemporary situation. And so rather than going towards Nineveh, he flees in the exact opp opposite direction, trying to go literally as far away as he could in the known world. Tarshish is what we know in Spain today, but that was what the known world was. He literally wanted to go to the other end of the earth to get away from going to these Ninevites. And we know the story. God's not going to be so easily controlled, and so God sends the storm, and then he's, the, 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 the solution is to be thrown into the sea. And while he is sinking down and he's threatened with death, God sends a great fish who swallows him up. And for three days and three nights, he's inside the fish. And it was there that he repents. And he believes and he vows to obey and he says, yes, I will go. And so in a symbolic sense then, Jonah died and was buried. And was in the, in the depths of the great fish, he cried out. It's a symbol of resurrection from the dead, of God saying, okay, now that I have your attention, I'm going to ask you to go out and do what you're supposed to do. And so he is cast up onto dry ground. He does continue on to Nineveh. He does preach the message that God has given him. And the people there hear the message. And they respond in faith and repentance. So just as Jonah was a sign given to the Ninevites, Jesus is a sign to the generation of his time. That would be the sign that they would be given. Three days, three nights, three days, three nights. So he needs to have a word about that. Because we as Westerners, we look at these figures and we say, ah, the math doesn't add up. Jesus went to the cross 
late Friday afternoon and he arose from the dead early Sunday morning, we have maybe 42 hours or so, but certainly less than 48 hours, but certainly less than three days and three nights. Does that not cry out, well, the Bible speaks with a forked tongue? Three days and three nights. Or is there a reasonable answer to what people would have understood in those days? And I think the answer is found as we do a study through the rest of the scriptures that there is a reasonable answer that we can give. For the Jewish people of that day, and for that matter, for the Semitic people of that day, all of the surrounding Middle Eastern peoples, their understanding of time was simply different than ours. They would see that any part of a particular day would be counted as a full day, a full night. They would count it as such. It could be five minutes, it could be five hours, it could be a full rotation of the earth, 24 hours. And so if we had the time, we could look at a number of different examples where important things are said to have happened, and the timing shows that either on that day or after that day or on the third day or after the third day, all throughout Scripture have that meaning of it was part of at least three days that could be counted as three days and three nights. I've only listed a few examples here. There's many more that we could list, and perhaps we can investigate that more thoroughly uh, one day. But just for our, our time this morning, just understand that in the Jewish understanding of time, it worked three days and three nights. Jesus said the sign will be that he will die and he will rise again to show that he is the Messiah and the Savior of the peoples. But next, the sign of Jonah is a sign of condemnation. Now, Judgment is the warning that judgment against sin is coming if there isn't a response on the people. Thankfully, in that, this context, they did respond. But what if they don't? Well, then it's a sign of condemnation. And so our text says the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now, I want you to imagine these scribes and these Pharisees that have come to Jesus. And they say, we wish that you would show us a sign. And they think that they are the teachers of the law of God, that they are the ones in the privileged position to give understanding of the things of God. And God says to them, I'm not going to give you a sign. And moreover, these pagan, Gentile, Ninevites are going to rebuke you one day. Somehow I don't think that principle would find itself in our laws of communication today about how to win over a crowd. Because they saw the Ninevites, the Gentiles, as dirty and as unclean and certainly inferior. And here Jesus is saying, well, those dirty and unclean and inferior people are going to rise up and condemn you. The Ninevites heard and responded. You've seen, and you have a very different response. Now, if we, we back up just like a half verse, we see that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. I just want to summarize a little bit, review what we have seen so far. The Son of Man is going to start coming up more and more now in the Gospel according to Matthew. And you recall when we first introduced the concept, and if you weren't there, then this will be a quick review for you, in Matthew chapter 8, where the Son of Man came up the first time, we said that there will be three primary meanings of the Son of Man in the Gospel of Matthew. That first it will mean he's the humble forgiver of sinners. And at least six times it's used in that context in this Gospel. So that secondly, at least ten times it refers to the suffering servant of the Lord, the one who would come and be punished and put to death and would rise again. 
And then the third one is a reference to the Son of Man who will be the ruler over all, who will come with glory and great power, set all things right, and rule over all of the glorified creation forever. And I think here, in this context in Matthew 12, we have the second meaning here that Jesus is referring to. Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Man, will die. He'll be put in a grave. He'll rise again after three days, bringing new life and forgiveness to all who believe. And that is the sign they're to look for, just as Jonah was dead and came back, so to speak. Jesus will die and will come back. So in response to their rejection and guilt of this century, that, of this generation that saw Jesus, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up, let me just speed ahead here, are going to rise up and condemn this generation, the generation that is in front of Jesus. So he's warning these Jewish leaders There will be Gentiles who will rise up and bring condemnation. We've heard that before, haven't we? You recall if we go back to chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, Jesus gave some warnings. And he said it's going to be better for the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah than for you, Capernaum, who has seen such power and such wondrous teaching. But they will rise up and condemn you because they would have repented and believed had they seen what you have seen. The people of Nineveh repented. They believed that God would judge them. And these very ones will be the ones that will rise up and speak against this generation because they had seen Jesus and they did not respond. So we have the language here, as it were, of a court scene where witnesses will come forward and give their testimony. And in that day of judgment, that last day, once again, we will see it to be Gentiles who will come and rebuke the Jews for their lack of faith. For they saw the Son of God. They, they heard from him. They saw the miracles that he performed. And they missed it. They missed the sign. The last thing on the sign of Jonah is that now a sign greater than Jonah is here. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Think of that amazing statement. That Jesus knows who he is. He's greater than Jonah. We can do a comparison. Jonah came with an attitude of hostility. Jesus came with an attitude of love. Jonah went to his enemies, but he didn't want to. Jesus, we are told, came to his own. And his own rejected him. Jonah traveled a long distance over land to get from Joppa where he was released on land from the fish and walked to Nineveh, a distance of over 600 miles. How long would it take to traverse 600 miles in very tough terrain? But Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to earth and walk among the dust of the people of the earth. Jonah came and preached judgment. Jesus preached the kingdom of God. Jonah came with just words. Jesus came with words and works but Jonah received a great response when he preached so if Jonah received a great response when he preached would not the judgment then be greater if Jesus is rejected the one who is greater than Jonah to whom much is given much is required yes Jonah was sent by God he preached he even gave his life that others might live he spent three days in the belly of death But in all of this, he was a sign pointing forward to a greater fulfillment. And now the greater one in Jesus has come. He was sent by God. He preached. He obeyed God. But he did it joyfully, not begrudgingly. 
Instead of longing for the destruction of the city, as did Jonah, Jesus walked through the city and cried on its behalf that it would not suffer judgment, but that it would repent and believe. Instead of hating his enemies, as Jonah was prone to do with the Ninevites, Jesus called on his people to love their enemies, to do good to them, to bless them, to pray for them. He came to seek and to save the lost, to turn the enemies of God into friends of God. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, but he rose again from the dead to show that he had conquered sin and death and the devil. He gave his life so that others might live. But unlike Jonah, who was the guilty, dying so that the innocent could live, here it was Jesus, the innocent, who took on the guilt of the guilty so that they might live. He rose to display the greatness of God's holiness and power and mercy. And so the warning goes out. The people of Jesus' day will receive a greater judgment because the one greater than Jonah has come, and they did not receive him. But that same Jesus who came, who said, I've come to build my church, still calls his church, even us, to go out to the Ninevites of the world and proclaim that the one greater than Jonah is here. He prays in Matthew 9, 38, that we would pray that more would go out into the harvest. And as we pray, we need to be willing to have feet that will move because after all, our lives have been purchased by him and we belong to him and all that we have can be used by him for his glory. But more than that, he wants us just to be faithful as his people to pray and to preach and to go and to serve and to love wherever it might be that he leads us because one greater than Jonah has come. And if we're in him, we have this great opportunity and great privilege to be his spokespeople to a, to a society, to a generation, this generation that needs to hear about Jesus. Now, of course, we do it in his power. We do it walking in step with him in the spirit. We do it in his timing. We do it for his purposes. We do it for his glory. We do it with his joy. Because we now know the one who is greater than Jonah. And the last one that we see this morning, our last major point, is the sign of Solomon. After declaring that he is greater than Jonah and thus the prophets, Jesus moves to another major figure in Israelite history, the wise and great King Solomon. And if Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, Solomon was assigned to another group of Gentiles. And so let's look at the sign of Jonah. And I'm actually going to break up the verse just a little bit, uh, change the order just a little bit for the phrasing, but follow along. I'll have it on the screen. You'll see what I'm doing as you as you have your own copy of God's word open. But first we see that Solomon was a sign of wisdom. And so I begin by quoting the first part of the verse and then drop down to the end. The queen of the south, she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. This is the story we find in 1 Kings chapter 10. This queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, comes from the modern day country of Yemen on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. And she had heard about the wisdom and the greatness of King Solomon and the blessings that had come over Israel because of that. And she sets out on a trek to see him. And what a long and difficult journey it was. She journeyed over 1,300 miles to go and see Solomon. This would take many months at a minimum. 
travel that far in those conditions, crossing deserts, barren lands, cold nights, facing marauding thieves. But she desired to go and hear the wisdom of Solomon. My friends, it is your desire this morning to know the wisdom of God. And to what extent are you willing to go and hear it? What sacrifices are you willing to make so that you will hear the wisdom of God? In any case, the queen of Sheba, or the queen of the south, came and spent time with Solomon. And she was a student, as it were, amazed at the brilliance of his teacher. I'm simply just going to read her story, her testimony that she shares in 1 Kings chapter 10. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. And this is a testimony given of the great King Solomon who was a great king, but not a perfect one. One that reminds us that we need a perfect king who is yet to come. And now that perfect king is here. The sign of Solomon is first a sign of wisdom. Secondly, it's a sign of condemnation. So as we take another extract out of this verse, it says the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So she had traveled as far as Solomon at great expense and at personal effort to, to hear him. When she got there, she rejoiced at what she had heard. And what a contrast into the scribes and the Pharisees. Paul, as he wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, says that Jesus is the true wisdom of God. And they didn't have to travel to go and hear the wisdom. The wisdom of God had come to them. And they rejected it. They didn't want to hear. The ultimate expression of God's wisdom was right there in front of them. They not only rejected him, they plotted how to destroy him. And therefore Jesus says it is the queen of the south who will rise up and testify against him on the day of judgment because a sign greater than Solomon's is now here. And behold, Jesus said, something greater than Solomon is here. As he said, there's the true wisdom of God. And if there was a reward for recognizing Solomon, how much greater will be the judgment for rejecting Jesus, who is greater than Solomon? He was a great king and a man of great wisdom, and yet Jesus is greater still. So as we contemplate this passage, just a few verses, let's take a step back and look at the broader picture of what's happening in chapter 12. Because Jesus has made some amazing statements here in Matthew chapter 12. He has already told us that he is greater than the temple. 
which implies them greater than the temple and greater than the priesthood and greater than the sacrifices and greater than all the rituals. He has said that he is greater than Jonah. Reflection on the fact that he was greater than the prophets. Now he says he's greater than Solomon. He's just greater than all that has come before. He is the true priest. He's the true prophet. He's the true king who was to come. So whatever came before Jesus was good. Jesus is just simply better. He has the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. As one commentator looks at this passage, he says this, The questioners of Jesus have a thought-provoking basis on which to consider the question of his authority. Temple and priesthood, prophet, king, and wise man, something greater is now here. And so they have come to him and demanding a miracle. But Jesus in charge gives an amazing response of his supremacy, of his greatness, that he is the ultimate priest and prophet and king who's the ultimate wisdom of God. He's making a claim that he is greater than all and greater than everything. And so we who have had the privilege of hearing these things about Jesus, learning more about who he is, what he has done, where he went, what he did when he got there, what his purpose was for coming, his teachings, his miracles, his promises fulfilled, his establishing of the church, his bringing in the kingdom of God, his promise of returning one day in glory and great power to bring the kingdom of God in its fullness. And knowing that we will all stand before him one day, the question we need to ask ourselves in light of who Jesus is in Matthew chapter 12, is Jesus greater than everything else in your life? We need to ponder that question. We need to consider, are there changes that need to come to my life, my attitudes, my thinking, my behavior, my calendar planning? What about you? So that the use of our time and our talent and our treasure will reflect that Jesus truly is greater than everything in our lives. Because we'll find out one day, he will not take second place in any situation as every knee bows and every tongue confesses. And so let's just do that now, joyfully, willingly, gladly, hopefully. Yes, Lord, you above everything else. Now next week, we're going to try to take two passages together, and we're going to see Jesus identifying the true family that he has in the kingdom of God. And he's going to lay a challenge to us that is deep and it's hard. And we'll need the Lord to prepare us as we get ready to come and sit around his word next week about what is the true family of God. But until we get to that time, what are some lessons we can draw away from our time in the word today? Well, I'd say because our understanding is limited, we ask Jesus to open our eyes to see him as he is, full of majesty and authority. It's a good place for us to be, to be on our knees in complete need of him and say, Give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. Give me a mind to understand. Give me a heart to embrace. Give me a will that desires. Secondly, because Jesus is Lord, we submit to his authority and do not insist that he does things our way. We don't make demands upon God. We make requests and then we bow and say, let your will be done, not mine. And then if he answers, we give him great praise. And if he doesn't, we say, well, thank you. Give me the strength to accept your response. 
Thirdly, because Judgment Day is real, we confess our faith and trust in Jesus and not in anything else. We sing when he shall come and trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That is our only hope. And so because we know that day is coming, we live today in light of the joy of being clothed in his righteousness and find that not only is that enough, it's more than satisfying. And lastly, because Jesus is the wisdom of God, we turn to him to make us wise for salvation and obedient in discipleship. He is the one that has come and called us to follow him. And as we follow him, he leads us. And he leads us into that pathway, into the kingdom of heaven, leading us ultimately to a place where he would deliver us safely under the shores of heaven as we walk with him. But it is this journey, and we need his wisdom to guide us. And thankfully, something greater than Solomon is here to give us that wisdom through God the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Lord, as we consider and as we contemplate these words, we, we know we are but flesh and blood. And these are things that are revealed to us by the Spirit of God through the power of your word, and so we need your help to understand and to grasp them. But Father, we want to be those who declare what we've already seen you do in our lives, who rejoice in what we have already received, and who humbly obey you to just go out and share that with those around us. Father, we want our lives to be lived today and the next day and each day that you give us in light of the day when we will stand in your presence and give an account for all that we will give. But even now, as we will then, we trust completely in you and your righteousness. And we thank you that in that righteousness we already have favor before God. Father, we want to continue in rich fellowship and communion with you. So teach us more and more what it is to obey, what it is to make those hard decisions, what it is to serve well, what it is to love others, what it is to lay aside our own agendas, so that Jesus will be supreme and Lord over all. We commit ourselves to you, Father. We need you. We thank you. Use us this week for your glory as we pray in Jesus' name. Would you stand as we sing together, Come Thou Fount, Come Thou King.
Come now, precious Prince of Peace. Hear your pride to you we sing. Come now, fount of our blessing. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. And my goodness, like a fetter, hide my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Come now, found, come now, King. Come now, pray. Prince of Peace, hear your bride to you we sing. Come now, fount of our blessing. Come now, fount, come now, King. Come now, precious Prince of Peace, hear your bride to you. 